podcast sponsored by Vermeer, your expert in hay and forage equipment. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Cosmos Fitzpatrick. He runs Aidenbrook. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. My brother and I, we both run the business here. But, um, I, I'm the main, main, mainly running it right now. I've got a team of about uh, 21 people. We navigate the, net, the domestic market in the uh, United States and Canada. We buy a little bit out of Mexico as well. But we, we navigate the domestic market here in, in North America, uh, moving a lot of a lot of a lot of hay products, a lot of shavings products, wood wood products, and uh and and a lot of straw to market. I'm glad you said hay products in there because that almost sounds like you're trading wheat or corn or some standardized agricultural commodity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we we actually we've always been involved in uh, just just hay, straw, and shavings. We originally had a small operation in the Northeast. We started in upstate New York. We were moving, you know, we we're just like your your typical hay brokerage, um, small scale. We've just moved products from upstate New York down into that. Uh, Lower New York, where there was a decent horse uh, equestrian population of people, and into Connecticut and expanded into New Jersey. So this is where we started. We've always stuck with those those three main classes of commodities: uh, straw, hay, and shavings. And they're they're one of the more challenging ones to trade. I know that a lot of grain traders and things like that. It's a lot more formalized of an industry. Right. There's a lot more companies involved in that, but. We wanted to do it on the entire national market across the whole United States. We stuck with those three commodities and we wanted to master them. So that's where we where we started. Now, how long have you been doing this? My brother started the company when he was 17 in 1998 uh, with just a pickup truck and a gooseneck trailer. Mm. And it was a lot different back then. Um, I think that's yeah, how did. most hate businesses start as a pickup truck and a trailer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we would. Uh, we were actually we lived on about 20 acres of land, but it was all blueberry patch. Um, it was just wild blueberries, and but we were surrounded by hay farms. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of siblings. I mean, there's there's a, there's 11 of us. So oh wow, uh, we were the we were the hands and arms and legs for for these uh, older farmers who were bailing all this hay. You know, they needed people in the wagons stacking hay and this and that. So we had pretty good work ethic. We would work for a lot of the different farmers in upstate New York, um, just stacking in our in our little little neighborhood, uh, stacking hay in barns, stacking hay in the wagons, getting it off the fields. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of the labor for them. But over the years, we found that some farmers would run out of hay and they would ask us if we knew where any other farmers that had hay because they didn't want to leave their customers high and dry. Sure. Because um, that's one of, one of the things. Farmers, farmers are actually really great. They really care about their customers. They really do. We found that over the years. Most farmers know that folks are feeding animals and... And that comes first before everything else. Yeah, a lot, a lot of their customers, you know, they'll they'll feed their animals before they feed themselves. A lot of these, so mm-hmm. you know, they're uh, they're passionate about it. So they want to make sure their customers stay supplied. You know, weather would happen. You know, you know, a baler would break down, and they didn't make the amount of hay that they expected, and they they would fall short for their customers. So they found that it was, um, you know, because we knew all the farmers and we knew what was in their barn because we put it in their barn we knew what they had for hay so we we started networking around and one of the farmers one day he gave he actually let us borrow a pickup truck and a trailer we we moved two loads of uh, second cutting 
from from another farmer's barn to, to his customer. He told us to do it, and he said he gave us great advice. And he said uh, he said make sure you put a dollar on it for yourself, you know. And we were like, well, a dollar, wow, that's a lot. And we went and did it, and the customer was happy, and he paid us in cash. And uh, we realized that we made in one day five hundred dollars. And uh, my dad would go to work all week, and he'd come home with about five hundred and fifty dollars. So we did that in one day. And that was history. You know, that was the rest is history. I mean, right, we got right. bigger trucks, we got more trucks, we got, uh, you know, it expanded and we, we figured out all the things by trial and error <laughs> over the yeah. years. We grew it into a, a big national brokerage now where we're, we, we move, we move r- roughly right now, uh, anywhere from, from 450 to 550 semi loads of hay every month. And, uh, it's everything from Western alfalfa and Western Timothy and premium Western Tef hay, uh, and all the specialty of, uh, you know, the types of hay into the specialty horse markets. And yep. we service the Bronx zoo and we, we provide a lot of hay for a lot of big dairies, uh, premium dairy hay and a lot of feedlots with their premium hay and straw mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, everything in between. So we've gotten to know the entire domestic market very well and, and how to navigate it because it is not as uh, easy as like maybe the grain markets and things like that. There's not a formalized way to do it. There's nuances to every different region you work in and oh. we, we've learned how to navigate them all. That's quite the feat. I mean, one of the problems in the hay industry is it is so unstandardized. We like to talk about premium dairy alfalfa, but that can mean a lot of things. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Especially we found that, you know, every region. So we dice up the United States into seven different regions. These are kind of their their own separate markets that are a little bit fractured from one another, but they interact with one another one way or another. But each one of those markets talks about hay and has different grades for hay. So you got to understand from your customer side, what their expectations are and understand from the farmer producer side, what is premium in their eyes? What mm-hmm. is premium in the customer eyes? And try to try to understand that completely. So it's a lot more difficult. You know, premium hay in one area and premium hay in another um, might mean one thing when it was bailed, but then when it's stored, it's a totally different thing. You know, are they stacking it outside or is it stacked inside? You know, yep. what kind of weather damage do they expect on it? Yeah. All these different nuances that you got to understand to navigate it. Oh, and then the vari- variability in nutritional content, too. We talk a lot about relative feed value, but, you know, in some parts, I'm thinking Northern California, they still trade on uh, total digestible nutrients, TDN. And then mm-hmm. I think all the university types would tell you that we're way past the world of TDN and RFV, right? Yeah, we're in the RFQ is really the, the should, be a, should be a standardized way of looking at it. You know, if you look at the most modern way of measuring it. Yeah. But RFV is probably the most common across the United States. And then that only applies to the alfalfa side of things. Grass hay is traded in the Western market. Grass hay is almost exclusively traded on looks, on, on physical appearance. I'd imagine you get into the Midwest, and I'm talking about the bigger Midwest, and you're talking more about what what's the protein content of that hay, right? Because it's going to cows, you're looking for a maintenance protein, those kind of things. Just a, an amazing variability that makes hay very hard to trade. We found that the biggest difference maker is understanding your customer type. So there are dairies out there. Uh, dairies and feedlots are... They're objective buyers, I call them. 
So they mm. buy mm-hmm. uh, they buy on nutrient analysis. They buy on the statistical look at what, the nutrient analysis. They, they're mainly buying on those the, that subject matter. Whereas your horse customers and your um, uh, you know your show horse, uh, your show cattle, those customers are typically buying on subjective qualities. How yep. does it look? Appearance, yep. color, how does it smell? Size, um, does how does it, it smell? Does it you know, taste good? I love yeah. I love when someone I love when someone walks up and they stick their nose into a bale of hay. They stick it right deep in there. Mm. <laughs> It looks funny. Or they take a bite of it. I think to myself, man, that's one way of doing it. I've seen all of these things too, where somebody, especially in the export Timothy market, it's very, very objective. They'll come up and stick their nose in that in that bale of hay and a handful of that Timothy. And I've had folks tell me that if they don't sneeze, they don't buy it. <laughs> I, I wonder what that measurement is. <laughs> Actually, I think I know the answer to that. It's the pollen. So if you cut it early enough, it still has pollen on it. If it's late cut, the pollen's already blown off. And most folks are allergic to the pollen. So wow. it's it's actually a little bit of an objective measure uh, of maturity. Yeah, that, that that's interesting. I've, I've never heard that one before. That's a, that's a, that's one way to measure it, that's yeah. for sure. I mean, it... <sighs> You got to have your methods, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. But it's I, I've learned uh, more recently that in the in the global market as well. When you look at a lot of the customers that are overseas and things like that, it's the same. It's the same principles that exist. You have to understand what your customers need in the end, and who those like. Uh, what I like to think is how are those customers making a living at the end of the day? If it's a feed store. Their job is to take that hay, buy it, and bring it into their feed store for a certain price and successfully sell it with a margin on it. So bale size, quality of hay, all those things are going to matter. And it matters who their customers are, um, how, how they move that hay, how they handle that hay, how they unload trucks. All these different things need to take into consideration. For you know, dairies, it's you know, how much milk are they going to be able to produce off this product? You know, security and safety is an important you know, role in that feedlots, you know, um, how efficient is this hay going to be? You know, they're they're mainly looking at efficiency. And uh, so you got to understand how are they, how are they making a living at the end of the day? How are they making profit and how can you bring them value? You know, how can you make a product that's going to help them achieve their goal? Let's take a break there and we'll get a word from our sponsor. With the 605 in, I feel I can go to the field and we just bail. We're not stopping. We're not adjusting. It's ready to go and it goes. I spend more time bailing with less issues that I've had with other bailers in the past. I'm Ken Moses and I get more hay put upright with the 605N Vermeer Baler. Hear the full story at makinghay.com slash haykings. We had a little prelude to this conversation and we talked about some of the things that you look at, the macro things that you look at when you're trading hay. Can you take us through some of those? Yeah, there's there's some things that um, that will be your major indicators of what the market's going to do in the future is, uh, you know, water availability and, and, and mainly down to drought monitors. So I, I look at the drought monitors on the national scale. I want to understand uh, which are the major producing states and which ones are, you know, are, are they going to be, uh, is their supply going to be high or low depending on what's uh, what's going on with the weather? Weather is going to be your biggest 
determining factor in the market. On the demand side, I look at the same thing. You know, in these areas, you know, uh, where there's the major cattle populations, where there are major horse populations, you know, which areas are going to be most affected by weather. We essentially, we look at that. That's one of our main functions that, that give us an indicator of what the market's going to do. A market is pretty simple. Uh, well, simplified down. It's not simple, but it's simplified down into supply, demand, and transportation. So the other big function of what we do is we follow freight lanes very closely. And there's different ways of moving product. You can move intramodal. You can move over the road uh, flatbed. You can move over the road van. And it really depends on what the market is doing to show availability of trucks. We used to own a fleet of 32 semis. We had a, you know, we had a big fleet, but we realized that we could achieve the same thing by navigating the freight markets better. Um, we could achieve the same, the same result of moving product from point A to point B with navigating the, that market. And what we've learned is that, you know, there's a lot that goes into the freight market. It changes daily. Uh, there's a lot that goes into the price, but at the end of the day, that market has its own supply and demand that goes into it. So. And you put together that that freight, so transportation. You take into account all your customers, what the um, what their demand is going to look like over the next year, and that's mainly you know your main indicator is weather, um, at weather, and also how the economy is doing for those customers. Yeah, because hay in some cases goes along with disposable income. Thinking about the equine market, thinking about smaller hobby farms, those kind of things, right? Yeah, exactly. And it depends on who, you know, what sort of stresses are going to be put on those people with disposable income. A lot of like your Florida population, for instance, a lot of that population, <laughs> a lot of those. Uh, Everyone ships hate to Florida. It's so funny. Oh, yeah. You know, it's one of the hottest market. I mean, we put a heat map on the U.S. of where the horse population is and you're able to look at, you know, Florida is one of the densest, but it's very seasonal. Everyone goes down there just for the winter, the snowbirds, as we call them. Um, but they're down there for the winter. But most of those people are making their money uh, or they have their disposable income from the stock market. That's typically where it's coming from. It's some sort of investment. Uh, so when uh, when the stock market gets really rocky or a lot of people start losing money, you see people start dropping off there. Whereas the dairy industry is, you know, 100% down to uh, the milk prices. You watch what's going on there, futures and milk prices. Yep. And then the, the feedlot industry, of course, uh, you know, cattle and beef prices. So there's a close tie to corn prices in the feedlot sector too. Yeah, that's a that's an important one. And I think that was the one thing that hit a lot of people from kind of the, the side this year was Price of hay was very high. I mean, historical highs over the last two years. Absolutely. Um, main, mainly due to supply issues. But one thing that you have to take into consideration is that these are the businesses at the end of the day. You know, cattle, uh, you know, dairy, dairy prices were high for a while there too, but they're going to constantly think of ways to cheapen up their rations. Okay. And they're going to look and it causes demand destruction for, for hay for straw, for other things like that. They're going to look at how they can get the same nutrients from these, uh, the same energy from these other, these other things. So you'll see, you know, especially in California, Oregon, um, you'll see a lot of uh, almonds, uh, almond holes being used now in feed. That's going to cause direct demand destruction for a lot of, uh, a lot of forages. 
uh, all those almond acres are displacing a lot of alfalfa acres. So at the same time, it's creating demand destruction. It's also creating supply destruction. I, I love the, the beautiful intricacies of markets. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, no, very true. But, you know, almond trees are, are typically planted when interest rates are low. Why is that? Because it takes about it takes about five years, four or five years to get a return on your almond trees. So when interest rates are low and cash is cheap, you plant. When interest rates go up, you know, and, and cash is expensive, you typically don't plant that. Now, over the last you know three or four years, you know, interest rates are now going up over the last year. But um, over the last you know four years or so, record amount of almond trees and almond acres have been added to that Western market. So you're going to still see that almond hull supply continue to increase for at least the next three to four years as a lot of those trees come to fruition. Yeah, as they come to maturity, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So you're you're seeing a lot of uh, causes demand destruction for forages. Yes, it also causes uh, you're you know you're losing some uh, forage acres for that. I'm also noticing that a lot of product is continuing to move long further and further distance, and that's like a common trend that's been going on for a very long time. Uh, it has more to do with the the size of farms. You know, there's the typical uh, farm is you know maybe in the in in the 90s it was you know a, a certain amount of acres, maybe maybe a couple hundred acres, 200, 300 acres, and now it's you know we're up there. In, I, I don't know the exact number, but it's I'm sure it's up there. And you'd be shocked to know that still the average farm is less than 100 acres. If you have more than 100 acres, you're in like the top 10 percent of agricultural producers in the U.S. That's wild because a lot of our farmers that we work with, a lot of the producers of hay, I mean, they're working with, um, you know, some of them are working with, you know, uh, about 200 acres. And that, that would be like a smaller farm that's working for about 200 acres. And some of the bigger ones are working, you know, thousands, yeah, thousands and thousands. I mean, 70,000 of one. I mean, and, and it's just, you know, in, in incredible operations. But, you know, I, I think that there's an overall trend to farms becoming you know, larger operations as equipment uh, gets more and more efficient. You're going to, the equipment also is more expensive, but you also have to cover more acres to make that efficiency work. So yeah, you're, you're going to look at, uh, you know, as these farms get bigger in, in size, they've got to ship their product further distance to move it all to market. So our, our average load is moving over 700 miles away um, from, from its destination point. So that's a, that's an interesting indicator, but the market is, is moving in that in that direction and even more and more we're noticing that that's expanding even more and more one of your hot places right now is washington state is that right is that a fair statement yeah yeah it's one of the hot spots um i mean we're moving a lot of export quality timothy export quality alfalfa three string uh out of washington state right now we're moving it to to the domestic markets the hot domestic markets this is music to my ears <laughs> yeah, well, we we had been following the export market closely right through to um, you know, around November we noticed that hey, things are slowing up, you know, we know I kept on hearing that grain exports weren't happening on schedule, grain exports were happening, and there was different logistics things that went into it. One thing that stuck out to me back in November, December, and I had a lot of conversations with exporters about it, and we went to the Alfalfa Congress and it was a major topic there as well. The exchange rate was not ideal for exporting. So this was a big indicator to me that, and I was out there on the ground in Idaho and in, in, in different areas, and I was seeing how much hay was wrapped and tarped and destined for export. And there was a lot more there than should have been there. 
you know? Um, and it was aggressively purchased. And what it was purchased with was, uh, it was, it was purchased aggressively. And when I mean aggressively, you know, there were some big deposits put down 80% down, which I would consider that a higher than normal deposit to put down on hay. Um, and the thing that always scares me when I see that is I say, uh, I, I, I write down my principles of the business. Okay. And I have a, a long list of principles that make up a market. I likewise have a list founding principles. And I, I take it from, uh, I take it from principles by Ray Dalio. I love his book. He's a great teacher, but you know, he teaches that, you know, if you can figure out the principles when you make mistakes and try not to make those mistakes again, then you'll, you'll move up and you'll move up and move in the right direction. If you continue to make the same mistakes over and over again, uh, you, you, you can find yourself in the same cycles. Um, so there's no way to break out of those cycles without learning from your mistakes. And so that's something that's, you know, fundamental to what we do. But one of the big principles was that speculation typically hurts everyone involved. That's one thing that we try not to do at all in the markets is we try not to speculate. Our goal is not to speculate on the market and make a big margin on hay or something by going out and uh, pre-purchasing it at a low price and then seeing the market rise and then selling it at a high price. That's not how we're out there to make money as a, as a hay brokerage. We're out there to move product to market and use the market that we have today to move it to market. And the end goal comes from back from our beginnings when we we started off for those farmers. We want to get hay to the customer and we want to get hay um, turned into money for the for the farmer, for the producer. And we want it done at a nice, fair market price, whatever the market is giving that day. And if they want to move their hay today, we're game to we're game to move it today. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to be able to go out on the market and we have a very large array of customers across the entire United States. And we can determine which market it was when you take out transportation, which market is going to be most advantageous for them to get that product to market, which customers are interested in buying. Our whole deal is about moving the product today and not speculating on the market. When I was in Idaho and when we were looking at this export market early on in the year, I said there is a lot of speculation going on right now. Now, in the grain markets, you see a lot of these guys who were, um, you know, they, they, had, uh, they had purchased futures on the grain markets. They sold a lot of their future positions. They, they were long on the markets early on in the season. And then a lot of that long position disappeared um, by like December. And we saw that starting to happen. And I said, man, the, the hay market is not the same way. You can't, just, you can't just back out of your position like that. You can't just sell your contracts to someone else. Um, it's not exactly that way. That became alarming. A lot of the hay that was spoken for, we started to see a peak commodity cycle peak out. And you know, with other commodities starting to drop, we said, this hay is also going to drop in price. You know, It's going to drop in price. It's bought at too high of a price. And now a lot of this hay. So we had been talking to a lot of exporters, let us move your hay now, uh, cut your losses now. If you continue to wait, you're going to... Uh, you're going it, to, it's going to get worse as the year goes on. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, we've seen about a $90 a ton drop in some areas, some extreme areas we're seeing, you know, it's less extreme in other areas, but you know, there's a lot of guys that got hurt big time because they were speculating. Now, everyone is hurting right now though, not just the, the people who put money out on that product. I mean, they're feeling the pain, probably the worst at the end of the day, the growers themselves They've got stacks of hay that they have eighty percent down on, and a lot of guys are walking out on the walking out on the deals. So they only got paid eighty percent 
um, for that hay. And they're the people walking back on the contracts, trying to back out of the contract the best they can. Now, 80%, that's like in best case scenario. There's a lot of guys that have, you know, 10%, you know, 20% down. But now the market's dropped 80 bucks a ton. Yeah. yeah. As, as painful as it is, these market corrections, I would argue, are healthy. They're required. You have to have them. It does help things in the long run, having these these painful bumps. That's easy for some to say when you're not actively participating in the market. It's it's easy to be an outside observer. I think the correction that we're seeing, in, especially in the, the West Coast grass hay market, is healthy, but it's going to be painful and, and meaningfully harmful to producers and exporters alike. Right. Well, I guess my point is that if we want to avoid the pain, uh, the markets are going to correct, and that's going to happen. But if you want to avoid the pain, one way to lessen the pain is to not participate in speculation. And that is a choice you can make. So I always think to myself, when I think of principles, like, well, what are the things that are in our control and what are the things that are out of our control? And speculation is one of those things that it's a choice to do. Now, it's very enticing as a grower to, you know, someone comes and, you know, they want to secure this batch of hay to ask them to secure it with a uh, with a contract. I, I, I'm, I'm totally in favor of putting contracts on things. You know, I'm okay with there being being some sort of a deposit or some sort of some uh, a binding agreement, something that binds or commits someone to the agreement. However, there has to be uh, a mutual understanding that you have to move that product to market. Um, you know, the goal is to move that product to market and turn it into cash. And if one party gets hurt, it's not like it's a like your risk is off because you know that that other party. A lot I know a lot of growers were like, "Well, that's spoken for, and I got this super high price. And that's their problem now." Yes, it is their problem, but it ends up becoming everyone's problem down the road. So it's not a winning situation to go ahead and you know participate in that sort of uh, action. You could do that by which is very hard to do. It's like saying, you know, you got ice cream in front of you. Don't eat the ice cream. I mean, when people are coming out, you know, you say, well, I don't speculate on the market. That's the response. Uh, I don't I don't participate in speculation. So if you have a market for this hay right now and you want to buy all the hay, put it in a contract. If you don't have a market for that hay or if you don't have a firm buyer for that hay, then you're, you're talking, you know, participating in something. You're, you're agreeing to participate at that point. If they, you know, they don't have a buyer. How do you balance the seasonality of supply in that, in that statement? Because if you're trying to compete in export or even in domestic markets, at some point you have to have some commitment to inventory. I think if you go back and listen to some of the podcasts we've had with uh, Don Schilling, for example, at, at Wesco, we have a verbal history here as to why we were thinking that hay prices were going to be high and continue to be high. And certainly in this in this case, there was a risk that the market, mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of different risks in the market, but exchange rates in particular really, really hurt yeah. our export market. We went from, well, let's see here, April, I'm going to just pick a day a year ago, or we're recording this April 4th here. Uh, the yen was 120, it was 122 yen to the dollar. And by the time we got to October, let's see here, the high day was October 18th at 150 yen. That's 
that's kind of like uh, a thirty percent increase, right? On top of the already higher price in hay that over just due to inflation, you yeah, know, fertilizer costs and other and things fuel like that. Costs yeah, and I mean, truly, it oh, was yeah. a more expensive crop to produce. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that we we kind of have a unique position to that because we have such a variety of markets. A lot of a lot of your buyers are buying out of one region or one area. Now, not all of them are, but. Uh, 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 the vast majority are buying out of one region. You know, they're going to buy out of, you know, let's let's say use your, you know, you're going to buy out of Washington, you know, and you're going to buy your acreage. You're going to try to secure all your acreage out of that area. Now, supply could be hindered by weather. Let's say, for instance, as I said, that's the biggest factor. Yeah. A drought or extended rain, all of those things. We've talked about them. Yep. Yeah. So for us, we have a unique perspective where we we have many sources for the similar quality hay. And when I say similar, it's enough where the customers are okay. And we're very transparent with what quality and where it's coming from, the hay that we're shipping them. Uh, well, we have enough variety of sources where there's always, if, if we have a shortage in one area, we'll pull from another, you know. And generally, the markets reflect the similarity in price enough where there's really no price difference, whether it was coming from that local market or whether it was coming from a further market. Um, because there's market centers. We have a unique perspective, and I understand that we definitely have uh, advantage to the typical farmer. I, I'm sure that this advice is, you know, maybe, you know, it doesn't quite fit everyone's everyone's operation, you know, because if you're buying from one local market, you're limited on your supply, whereas we're buying from, you know, thousands of farmers across the U.S. Uh, so we have a wide variety of, of places to pull from. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really great discussion and I think pretty balanced and all-encompassing. So I I really appreciate that. No, I really appreciate the opportunity. I love the podcast. Um, I actually was recently introduced to it and I've been, you know, tearing through the episodes, but so much educational info. Yes, (laughs) keep listening. Yep, yep. So, (laughs) yeah, no, I was was sharing it with my team of people and, uh, you know, so I got a a pretty decent team of people here and and great, great community great group of people to work with. But our, our whole goal is to move product to market. If, and I always tell everyone this, but I think that life ceases when movement ceases. Um, so oh, um, yeah. it's not it's not the other way around. So our whole mission and our goal is to move the market and be by moving markets, by keeping things moving, keep, keeping product moving for our farmers, for our producers, uh, that keeps their, their farms alive. It keeps their communities alive. It keeps everything alive. So, um, you know, that's what we're passionate about doing is navigating the markets, understanding this, getting better at it, helping everyone to to continue to keep products moving, keep their farms alive, keep their dreams alive. So yeah. that's our whole mission behind it. If somebody wants to learn more about your company, how do they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can find us on Facebook, Aiden Brook, A-D-E-N-B-R-O-O-K. Um, and you also go to AidenBrook.com. So uh, you, you'll find more information about our company there. But also, you know, if you go on the if you go on our uh, company directory, I think my cell phone's right on there. But they got the rest of the team too. Give us a call. All of us would love to talk markets with our farmers, whether you, whether we buy your hay or not. We'd love to help you navigate the market. That's just things that we love to do. So give us a call if you want to know. You know, if something will work, if something won't work, if you're thinking of planning. You know, uh, full disclosure. I don't know everything, and I and I and I don't think I ever will. Sure. Um, but we, we sure we sure would love to to help, and we, we we do go out there and we learn a lot from from traveling all over the United States and seeing so many farms. So um, if there's something that you know, if you want to pick our brains or anyone on our team's brain, go ahead and give us a call. We're we're, we're available. 
Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'd like to say a special thank you to Vermeer for sponsoring the podcast. I want to thank uh, Nick at Palmieri Sound for doing all of our audio editing and uh, Jessica Palmieri for doing all of our social media work. Thank you very much. Thank you.